Hello everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of Decoding the Unknown. As always, this episode brought to you by me. I read it. Ilza's written it. It's the Walking Statues of Rapa Nui. Nui, which is a pronunciation I definitely looked at before this. Now, normally I don't like to bother. <laughs> it's like, that sounds like way too much work, doesn't it? But given that it's the subject of today's video, I thought it would be a good idea. Anyway, let's jump into it, shall we? Let's see what there is to decode, because I don't think statues can walk. As always, ready to be proven wrong? Don't think I will be. <laughs> On the shores of a tiny, windswept island, seven statues patiently gaze out over the open seas. In the distance, a tiny speck appears, bobbing up and down in the restless ocean. Slowly, the speck becomes three, and finally, the three specks turn into three ships, fighting their way through the pounding waves. It'd be interesting to know who was more surprised, the seven statues seeing really big and impressive canoes for the first time, or the crew aboard the three ships coming across this small island that up to that point no one knew existed, and being greeted by locals dressed in bright colours, and looming up behind them, really big stone heads. I'll tell you who wasn't surprised, the stone heads, because they're made of stone, they can't be surprised. Ever since that fateful Easter Sunday in 1722, when Dutch Admiral Jacob Roggeveen came across the tiny piece of land he creatively named Easter Island, the Western world has been captivated by the giant statues called Moai that can be found all over the island. Roggeveen himself only stayed for one day. He was looking for a continent, Terra Australis, not another island, but his visit was the first of many visits to come. The past was... It's the worst. I always say the past was the worst, but the past in this case, in this case, is kind of awesome. These like people out there exploring the world, and they're like, "No, I'm not looking for some boring ass island. I'm looking for a fucking continent, mate." And it's like today, there, I feel like all of the islands have been discovered, right? Because we have satellites, and it's like there's no big secret island out there that no one's discovered that is actually awesome. What a disappointing time we live in. Today, thousands of tourists flock to the island to see the enigmatic Moai, and researchers spend years trying to figure out the secrets of the giant statues with limited success. Sadly, much of the history of the islanders, known as the Rapanoi and the story of the walking Moai, have been forgotten by a people that was nearly wiped out by multiple disasters that befell them. Let me guess, some of those disasters have got to do with that Dutch dude arriving, because it's like, yeah, yeah, they're all getting on, blah, 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 blah. It's like, oh, yeah, smallpox the plague all that horrible shit and through all that the moai have stood patiently watching the story of the island unfold they've seen it all they know all the secrets but like most ancient gods they have no intention of sharing <laughs> not that they can they're made of stone ilza the grand moai what makes Easter Island, or Rapa Nui as it's known by the locals, so unique are the statues. Close to a thousand statues of different sizes have been found standing or lying down all around the island. Holy shit, there are a thousand of them? I thought there were like five. Wow, okay. They were busy on that island making those statues. <laughs> They're probably like, yeah, no, farming, nah. Um, hunting, nah. Looking after our kids, nah. Exploring, nah. Building massive statues, hell yes. A religion makes people do crazy shit. Like, people just spend, like, a large part of their Sunday in church worshipping the mystical sky god. And it's like, why? It's like a big waste of time, doesn't it? Oh, people are not gonna like that. Through archaeological excavations and conservation efforts, some of the fallen statues have been returned to their platforms, but most of them are still buried up to their shoulders, leading to the mistaken belief that they're nothing more than heads. There's a body underneath them? It better be a tiny-ass body, because otherwise those statues are gonna be buried deep. On average, a Moai can weigh up to 80 tons and stand around 10 meters tall. However, the lot that's uh, 33 feet, by the way. You're welcome, Americans and old British people. 
However, my, my nan was always like, it's like 70 Fahrenheit outside. They'd be like, nan, speak English. Tell it to me in Celsius. Or if you're feeling old, centigrade. Fahrenheit is very tw 19th century, nan. It's okay. She doesn't watch this show because she's dead. However, <laughs> God, that didn't expect that joke to be quite so dark there. Don't know why that came out of my mouth. I apologize. But not to my nan because she's dead. However, the largest Moai found to date, El Gigante, always around, sounds like a fat drug dealer, weighs around 150 tons and stands at an impressive 20 meters or 66 feet, with the slightest Moai only standing at 1.13 meters or 3.7 feet. Some of the Moai also wear a pacal on their heads. Hope you're going to explain to me what that is, Elsa, because I'm not very familiar. It's not you. Yeah, yeah. Well, welcome to the gap, sir. What would you like? I'd like a pacal. They'd be like, don't know what that is. No one knows what that is. The Bacau is made from soft red stone and shaped like a hat and probably represents some kind of headdress or perhaps a top knot. The Moai all appear to be male, though a handful of female Moai have been found with an oversized head and similar facial features. A long, sloping nose, deep-set eyes with a narrow mouth and a very prominent chin. The news that the statues had bodies took the world by storm in around 2012. Wait, we only discovered they have bodies in 2012? <laughs> No, no archaeologists have ever been to Easter Island and be like, have we considered digging below them? See if there's anything down there. Because that's, isn't that like literally the job description of an archaeologist? Have a dig at the ground and see if anything's down there. Below a giant head would seem like a great place to look, archaeological community. However, it wasn't quite the grand discovery that the media made it out to be. The archaeologists studying the statues have known about the body since around 1914. Okay, good. Otherwise, I was about to, like, think the whole archaeological community are just smoking crack instead of doing archaeology. The statues have been standing around the island for hundreds of years, so most are still buried in rocks and sediments, which set sorry, not sediment, that'd be very hard to be buried in, but rather sediment, which both hid but also preserved the bodies. It's not the full body, though, it's just the torso and two arms. Apparently, the statues didn't need legs to walk. Well, they wouldn't be walking, Ilza, would they? Because they're made of stone, Ilza! Each statue sits on a stone platform called an Ahu, and an Ahu can contain up to a dozen statues. It can? Oh my. The Ahu is a raised rectangular platform made with large worked stones and a ramp paved with beach pebbles. The area in front of the platform is usually leveled. So far, around 360 of these platforms have been found. Research suggests that construction of these megalithic platforms probably started around the 13th century. The largest Ahu found to date and probably the most photographed of the lot is the Ahu Tongariki, which contains 15 moai. In my mind, these are just like scattered around the island and their heads poke out of the ground. I didn't realize there were so many or they were like clustered together like this. I'd say I'd like to go to Easter Island, but I know it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. It's like, don't, your first, this is going to sound like super ignorant, but it's close to New Zealand, right? Let's just, let's just Google Maps it, shall we? You can see this on the screen. I mean, not exactly what I'm seeing, but let's look up Easter island my thinking is it's somewhere like like off the east coast of new zealand somewhere in the pacific oh god it says it's near chile <laughs> am i thinking i'm thinking of christmas islands i'm thinking of christmas islands what why would you i mean it technically is off the east coast of new zealand if you you know travel across the entire fucking pacific where is christmas island is that somewhere or Cook Islands or some shit like that? Hey, look, the Cook Islands, they're like where I imagined... What are we talking about today? Easter Island is. Where's Christmas Island? Is that even an island or am I imagining that? Christ... 
Christmas Island. Australian External Territory. That sounds more like what I'm talking about. Nope. <laughs> I guess it was the Cook Islands or some shit. For a long time, one of my embarrassing geography things was I thought New Zealand is where Papua New Guinea was. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's because I played Risk as a kid and like Australia was divided into like Eastern Australia and Western Australia and above it there was this other bit that I forgot the name of and I always assumed that that was New Zealand. Literally, I, I think I was in my 20s when I discovered that New Zealand was actually not there and was rather off the southeast coast of Australia. So that's a fun thing to discover. I'm learning all about geography today, but no, what you need to know is that Easter Island is off the coast of Chile and I'm, I still think it does take a really long ass time to get there. So no, I'm not going to go. I don't think I'll ever go there. It's too much travel for too little excitement. Like if they were like, yeah, yeah, we got like adventures on Easter Island, I'll be like, dope. But just like to see some statues that I can look up on Google. I know it sounds super uncultured, but I don't really need to go and see those in person. Like, I think I'm the only person who's ever been to that Anchor Wat place and was like, yeah, it's all right, isn't it? I mean, it's quite good, but I wasn't desperately impressed. <laughs> Sorry, that was a very long tangent. Let's carry on. The statues stand with their backs to the ocean, looking inland, toward the people who made them. One exception is the seven moai on Ahu Akivi. Legend goes that they face the ocean to help lost travellers find their way. Uh-oh. <laughs> Be like, yo, 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 Dutch lost traveller, over here, over here, over here. Oh god, you're full of diseases. Around 95% of the statues were carved at Ranoraraku Quarry, an extinct volcano from the volcanic tuff, a porous stone formed from solidified ash. The native islanders didn't have metal, and the tuff being a soft stone would have been easier to work with their limited stone tools. These were basalt picks known as toki. The Ranu Raraku Quarry is home to statues in various stages of production, which gives us a good idea of how these statues were carved. There are also several completed statues still waiting patiently in the quarry for transport that will never arrive. I don't know. Come on, archaeologists. At least finish the job. Grab those statues and pop them in a good place. I know that's not how archaeology works, but it's how I wish it worked. It's like, yeah, Leaning Tower of Pisa, prop that shit up. What else is, like, broken? The, Ch the, the Chinese Wall. The Great Wall of China. Fix that shit. It's all falling down. Each statue was probably commissioned by a specific person or group and carved by a team of stone workers working under a master carver. They would start by quarrying a large rectangular block, first carving out the front and sides of the statues, gradually separating the back from the quarry rock. Once the basic figure was carved out, the master carver and his assistants would add some of the details. When this was done and the statue was separated from the quarry rock, it would be moved downhill and placed upright in a hole so that the master and his little helpers could finish the rest of the detailed work and the back of the statue. Finally, the statue is ready to move to its new Ahu. Eye holes would only be carved once the Moai arrived at its destination. Placing the Pukau on the head became part of the process much later. It seems that the idea to put hats on the massive statues only started around the 15th and 16th century. These headdresses, with a diameter of up to 2 meters at 6.5 feet, Americans and my nan, um, weighing up to 12 tons, were quarried from the redstone at Prunapau Quarry before being moved to the statues to give them a chic new look. Once the hat was on and all the final details carved, eyes of coral would be added. Finally, turning the moai. Why would their eyes be met? Is there some sort of coral that I don't know? Coral to me is, or is that like spindly stuff? How does that work as an eye? Finally, turning the moai into an orange aura or a living face, and the process was complete. 
Despite the small size of the island and the fact that a little over a thousand moai have already been found, new moai are still being discovered. The most recent was found in February 2023 in a dry lake bed. The sculpture is smaller than the other statues on the island, but it was an exciting moment for researchers who believed that there could be even more moai lying around the riverbed waiting to be uncultured. Again, at the risk of sounding like super uncultured, it's like, yeah, what do you expect? It's like, yeah, there's going to be some buried underground. It was centuries ago. They're like, ooh, how exciting. Another statue. You found a thousand of them. How exciting can it be? So I'm really selling this episode, aren't I? <laughs> Why this little guy was in the lake in the first place is a bit of a mystery. However, Moai loves company and apparently tend to travel in packs. So when there's one statue, there's probably more. And archaeologists just can't wait to go find the rest. <laughs> Like, I think archaeology is cool sometimes, but also other times you're going to be like, oh god, that's boring. Like, what's your job going to be for the next few years? Literally just uncovering more of the same. You'll be like, oh, look, a pot. <laughs> yes. The story of the statue builders. Who first settled the island is one of the many mysteries of the Rapanoi. The small island, only around 163.6 square kilometers, that's 63 square miles, lies in southeastern Pacific Ocean, 2,000 kilometers from the islands of southeastern Polynesia, and around 3,600 kilometers away from mainland Chile in South America. There were miles conversions, but they're all just thousands. It's like far. Let's just say it's like a th two thirds, roughly. That's a long way to paddle a canoe. While some argue that it's unlikely that early navigators and seafarers could have covered such vast distances without precision instruments, the Polynesians were amongst the world's first skilled seafarers, so they probably wouldn't have had any problem finding their way to Rapa Noi as it became known. When exactly they arrived is also up for debate, but it appears that once they arrived in their new home, they remained there in complete isolation. No one ever returned to the mainland, and no one from the mainland dropped in for tea. It's really far away. Like, I don't want to go there today. And we got planes and shit. Although I have a feeling you have to take a boat there, don't you? Because there's no airstrip. Am I remembering that right? But then if thousands of visitors go, they're not all going to be getting on a boat for like a week, are they? Sounds pretty grim. And whenever I'm on those things, you know, whenever it's like, oh yeah, you do that, it's like you get on a boat for a week and you go to this island. It's like, what happens if I get sick? <laughs> It's like, literally a week's back in the boat. Excavations at Anakina Beach in the Rapa Nui National Park show signs of early settlement in the form of charcoal, tools, and even bones. The researchers doing the excavations figured that this might be the original settlement. These finds were dated to around 1200, suggesting that this was when the people first arrived. However, a 1977 study analyzing pollen claims that deforestation started as early as 800 CE, which meant that the new inhabitants arrived 400 years before Anakina Beach became home to a small settlement. Joanne Van Tilburg, founder of the Easter Island Statue Project, oh, it's Joanne, he's going to dig up those riverbeds, isn't it? Also feels it's unlikely that the original settlers only arrived in 1200, considering that the locals were already building platforms by the 1200s, and there were signs of crop intensification, which would suggest that the Rapanoi had been around for a while by that time. One thing that has researchers scratching their heads is how exactly the new settlers knew where to find the small islands. Did they know? Surely they're just like, I don't know, <laughs> people in the past are like brave and shit. They'd be like, let's go out exploring, get in the canoe, see where it takes us. And they, they go out into the Pacific Ocean, probably not realizing quite how big it is. And they drift around for a while, they're probably super hungry and they're like, oh, thank God, an island. <laughs> Let's go build some statues. It seems unlikely that a group of people loaded some canoes and just struck out blindly into the wide ocean in the hope of finding land. I mean, yeah, but like I said, they didn't really know how big all that shit was. They'd just be like, I can't, how far can it possibly be to the nearest island? And it's like, you don't have any idea how big the Pacific is, do you? I can't blame them. It was the past. They didn't know shit. 
However, if you ask some native Rapa Nui Islanders, they have a pretty good idea of how it all went down. Wait, there are actually native people still living there today? I thought, wasn't the island like super deforested and barren? And now it's just like a wasteland with statues? Benedicto Tuki, an islander who has since passed on, claimed to be a descendant of the island's first king, Hotu Matua, and his grandmother was the last queen of the island. According to tales told to him, Hotu Matua brought his people from Hiva, an island in the Marquesas, due to fighting there. He arrived on the island with seven different races, who then became the seven different tribes of Rapa Nui. How many people are there? Seven different tribes arriving by canoes? I don't feel that's realistic. Hotu Matua knew where to go because his tattooist and priest, Hua Maka, had seen the island in a dream and described it in great detail. Okay then, well we know that's not real. Hotu Matua decided that the island was the ideal home to settle his people and set sail in canoes loaded with people, food, water, plant cuttings and animals, everything a group of settlers would need to survive. They sailed across the seas for two months before finally arriving at Anakina Bay, finding the island exactly the way the tattooist saw in his dream. However, this is just one version of how the islanders came to the islands. Other stories tell of seven explorers sent out by Hotomatoa to find the islands. Like many island cultures, the Rapanoi history was passed down from one generation to the next in the form of stories and songs, which, while entertaining, is not a brilliant way of recording history. So it's not surprising that the stories evolved. We storytellers love to add our own spin to each tale we tell. However they got there, the islands the new arrivals found themselves on was beautiful and rugged, but without the abundance of natural resources you'd usually expect to find on a tropical island. The soil is still not well suited to agriculture and fresh water is scarce as the island has no permanent fresh water streams. Bro, I mean it's, it's a small island, but it's still fairly large as islands go. And there's no permanent freshwater streams? That sucks. You'd be like, oh no, this isn't the island I want. There's nothing to drink. Unlike most other islands, there are also no large coral reefs offshore and no lagoons. However, despite these limitations, the Rapanoi still managed to grow some staples like yams, sweet potato, and sugarcane. And while they couldn't feast on shellfish, the fishing around the island is pretty good, so they probably had enough food to go around. At first, all was well. Now, there are two versions of what happens to the Rapanoi people. One is a cautionary tale of what happens to the environment when people start getting greedy and overpopulate and overwork their lands. <laughs> it's good we've all learned that lesson. Easter Island sported forests of palm trees for thousands of years, possibly as many as 16 million trees, with some standing 30 meters high. Well, that's a hell of a lot of trees, which means a hell of a lot of coconuts. And if you crack those bad boys open, you know what's inside? Drinkable, delicious coconut water. When people first arrived, they needed fire to cook, and they needed to clean land for farming, which led to large parts of the forests being chopped down and burned in order to clear the land. Once they started building the Moai and the Ahu, they needed timber for construction and possibly for moving the statues. Of course, once the trees were gone, the soil eroded and the- holy shit, they cut down all of the trees already? <laughs> the birds packed up their stuff and set off for distant lands, or just died out. They probably died out. Unless they're like migratory birds, they ain't making that flight. Right? Regular ass birds don't fly that far. Like, I've seen a chicken, it can barely move. I guess that's not a brilliant example because we've like ruined chickens so they taste delicious. But like, can a regular bird like a sparrow or some shit fly really far? I get the feeling the answer's no, right? Although I don't know how many sparrows are on Easter Island. And without trees to build shelter and more importantly canoes for fishing, life on the islands became difficult and soon the population was faced with widespread starvation. However, some researchers feel that this isn't an accurate portrayal of what happened on the island. Humans can be very destructive, we've proven that many times over, but researchers Terry Hunt and Carl Lipo weren't convinced that the settlers alone could have caused so much damage. Whenever I see someone with the surname Hunt, all I desperately want is for their first name to be Michael, and it never is. 
because why would you name your son Michael if your surname is Hunt? The discovery of rat bones might solve that mystery. When the people arrived, they brought with them the Polynesian rat, either as a food source or unintentionally in the form of ratty stowaways. With an unlimited food supply and the forms of delicious palm trees and no natural predators other than those pesky humans, it was rat heaven. <laughs> you know what rat heaven means? Lots of delicious rats, yes! With rats munching down on the seeds and eventually the new saplings, it became impossible for the palm forests to regenerate. Add people chopping down trees and rapid deforestation becomes inevitable. The reports by early European explorers seem to support this version of events. In Rogovine's reports of the islands, the Moai were still standing and he estimated the population to be around 8,000. When Captain Cook arrived in 1774, he reported that there were no trees over 10 feet tall and he estimated that the population was around 700. Oh my, that's quite a quite a substantial loss, isn't it? In 1821, Captain Thomas Rain, sailing out of Australia, reported that the inhabitants of the island swam out to meet the ship and there wasn't a canoe inside, thus confirming reports of lack of seaworthy canoes. However, these early accounts aren't always reliable. Only 12 years after Cook's visit, another explorer, Jean-Francois de la Perose, estimated the population of Rapanoi to be between 2,000 and 3,000 people. So either Cook or de la Perose had a bit of trouble with numbers and counting. Yeah, it's a fairly substantial difference. I mean, maybe one guy was just like, oh, no, I just went to one village. 700 people, but most of the people lived in, like, the city around the corner. I mean, it doesn't seem very likely. Maybe just be, maybe it was just shit accounting. The picture of the Rapanoi destroying their land with a helping pour from the rats was accepted for many years. But how true is this really? Archaeologists love to disagree about things, and some state the island population might have been up to 15,000 or even 20,000 people at its peak. However, the poor soil and lack of fresh water would have been limiting factors, so a population explosion is unlikely. The population probably remained steady at 3,000 people from the mid-1300s until the arrival of the Europeans in 1722. Recent research also suggests that the deforestation happened gradually, not overnight, and there's even evidence that attempts at reforestation were made. However, even with the trees gone, the people adapted to their environment and were still healthy, happy, and according to some research, still building Ahu and Moai to stand on them by the time the Europeans set foot on the island. Once the Europeans arrived, however, things started going downhill fast as the population was decimated by diseases like smallpox and also the slave trade. Oh, I was like, wait, the slave trade was a disease? And I'm like, no, two separate things, Simon. Use your big brain. Instead of taking photos and buying souvenirs, the Europeans simply bagged the locals to sell on the slave markets. By 1877, the once proud people had been reduced from 3,000 to 111. A few articles claim that the people who built the statues have all vanished, and what happened to them is a big mystery. But that's not true. The Rapanoi is a resilient people, and today the population stands at 2,000 native Rapanoi to a population of 7,000 people living on the island. Okay, so people do live here, on this decimated island. Based on their oral traditions, we know the Rapanoi who built the statues were living were a complex society with chiefs, priests, and aristocracy, but also were people who took great pride in their work. Many of the lower caste became master craftsmen, carvers, divers, and canoe builders in their own right. Many of the crafts, song and dance of the great statue builders are kept alive by their descendants. So much like the statues, the people lived through some difficult times, but they're still very much alive and kicking. I have to say that's not what I expected. I really thought the whole island was just like devastated by deforestation and no one could live there anymore because it's just barren. I guess not. The big question. Why were the Moai made? 
Carving and then moving the huge Moai took some time, so it stands to reason that if you're going to be making very large statues, you probably got a good reason, right? Yeah, well, I mean, sort of. You think it's a good reason, but it's not a good reason, and my bet is it's Sky Gods. Unfortunately, we're not really sure what that reason was, but as always, we have some theories. Throughout history, large statues have often had some kind of religious or ritual purpose. According to Rog, even when he arrived on the island in 1722, he found the native islanders praying and performing, ritu and performing rituals to honor the Moai. He noted in his ship's log that the people of the island didn't appear to be carrying weapons, which must have made his colonizing heart just beat a bit faster. But instead, they appeared to rely on their gods or idols standing along the seashore in great numbers for protection. You're going to be like, uh, <laughs> as a colonizer, you'll be like, excellent. <laughs> Idiots think the gods are going to protect them. Only my god is right. Like many other ancient cultures, the Egyptians come to mind, and the Rapanoi believed their chiefs and rulers were descended from gods. After death, the chief would again reach divinity. The statues were meant as temporary housing for the spirits of their ancestors to keep the spirits safe until an apartment opens up and they can move on to the next plane. Either that or the statues were meant to capture the spirit and keep it safe so that it could continue to help the tribe. Archaeologists have discovered human remains at some of the Ahu, which further support the idea that these were sites for death rituals. This is also why statues needed to resemble humans as they were used to honor the dead. Instead of just remembering the revered ancestors, the people wanted a physical image to represent each chief. So the theory goes, the Moai are the faces of the dead ancestors. The first statues were smaller, but eventually they started getting bigger. This could be due to mana, an important concept in Rapa Noi beliefs. Mana is a sacred and spiritual power that comes from divinity and is channeled to the people from those who are descendants of the gods themselves. It's the divine life force, the source of energy responsible for fertility of the earth and seas. So, researchers believe a larger statue meant that the chief who ordered it had more mana. The chief next door saw this and, in a classic case of keeping up with the Joneses, decided to make an even bigger Moai to have even more mana and power, and so on, leading to some of the huge Moai standing and lying around the island today. Another theory suggests that since the statues had religious significance, any disaster that befell the island was met with a bigger statue. A disastrous crop failure led to an even bigger Moai to honor and please the ancestors and gods so that they'd provide a better harvest next time. Yeah, again, this is exactly the case of they think it's brilliant and exactly what they should be doing, but objectively it's a terrible idea and they should instead be using that money to, I don't know, make weapons to actually keep away the Dutch or make, you know, crops so they don't starve to death or maybe just stop chopping down the jungle. However, anthropologist Carl Lipo doesn't believe that the statues represent ancestors. The statues are very generic, and while the features are exaggerated, the statues don't seem to have specific defining features, like you'd expect to find on a statue carved to honor a specific person. Think of the Greek and Roman sculptures of important figures like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, or the Egyptian statues of pharaohs. There are also no ahus or statues found on top of hills, a place where you'd expect a monument to be built, especially if it's supposed to be symbolic. Another possible explanation is that the statues are competitive in nature, considering the variety in size. According to legend, there were originally seven tribes, but today there are about 36 different clans on the island. With a variety of culturally distinct and separate clans or tribes, the statues could have served as status symbols, essentially the ancient equivalent of a fancy new car, a big house, or in South Africa, a tennis court in your backyard. Oh, is that the flex? I heard in Australia it's balconies. What were we... I don't... British people were not very flexy. I mean, I don't think, are we? I don't know, are we? I guess we do drive fancy cars and such things, but I don't know what that would be. I guess big house, like big, big, big house, <laughs> tiny house in London. <laughs> 
The larger the statue, the more resources, especially in the form of labor, went into making it, proving that a particular tribe was flourishing. If you can afford to spare men to carve statues instead of farming or fishing, well, you're doing very well indeed. Considering the limited resources on the island, you'd expect conflict. However, there isn't much evidence for prolonged and particularly lethal warfare. There are no fortifications on the island, and while skeletons with clear signs of injury have been found, those injuries were rarely lethal. So perhaps the islanders were smart enough to realize their small population couldn't sustain extended warfare, and instead of killing each other by the hundred, they engaged in territorial displays by building more and bigger moai than the tribe just down the road. Yeah, I don't know if I really believe that one, because at some point they they're going to be like, yeah, 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 but if we murder the tribe down the road, there's going to be more resources for us, and also they're going to be building no moai at all. Not even tiny ones. Personally, I think trying to make better art than the other fellow is a far more civilized form of warfare, and the Europeans should have been taking notes instead of selling the locals into slavery. Completely agree if it's true, but I don't think it's true. Carl Leap, however, believed that the moai were used as landmarks of sorts, indicating where to find valuable resources. After mapping the exact locations of the moai, Lipo and his team discovered that the moai were often located next to important resources like workable land for agriculture, freshwater, or good fishing spots. Doesn't doesn't that also just mean it's where the people were going? Like in general, so they'd be like, that's a nice place for a moai, isn't it? Because we're just fishing here, you know, one afternoon, and Bob's like, you want to build one of those moai? And they're like, yeah, let's put it over there rather than some random place we'd ever go to. However, for the most part, the statues were found close to a freshwater source suitable for humans. Freshwater is an incredibly valuable resource on the island, as the island has no permanent streams, and there's no real evidence that the natives relied on the lakes as the lakes and springs were sitting atop volcanic cores. They were hard to reach and far away from settlements, so it's unlikely that they were used as a steady water supply. Rainfall was unpredictable, and when it rained, the rain would drain into aquifers. The groundwater would then seep into the caves and appear in streams on the coast. Lipo and his team first noticed these freshwater streams on the coast when they saw horses drinking from what appeared to be the ocean. As we all know, drinking seawater is a bad idea and horses aren't stupid, so they probably weren't drinking the seawater, which is how the researchers discovered the brackish streams that provided the locals with drinking water, according to historical records. Some of the Ahu were found without an obvious fresh water source close by, but historic wells indicate that the locals would make a plan to get water and dug wells. Considering the time and effort involved in carving a statue and transporting it, the statues were probably not used as markers to indicate, find your fresh water here. However, fresh water is vital for drinking and farming, so it makes sense that these spots would be considered important and possibly even sacred, making it an ideal spot for a moai, the embodiment of a sacred ancestor. But again, I'll just say, like, also, if you're erecting a massive statue, even if you've carved it elsewhere, it's going to be quite a lot of effort to kind of put it up and all of that stuff, you'd want to do it near a water source rather than far away, because lifting statues is going to be thirsty work. The Ahu and Moai found near fresh water sources might also have been used to show that it belonged to a specific tribe or clan. In true competitive fashion, the size of the Moai, or perhaps some of its features, would indicate the quality of the water. The better the quality, the higher the status and the bigger the competitive advantage the higher the status and the bigger the competitive advantage. However, it's possible that the Moai were more than just religious icons and served a practical purpose, perhaps without the islanders themselves being aware of it. According to a study by Joanne van Tilburg, the Moai was believed to improve agriculture, which made them critical to food production. 
Van Tilburg's team, which includes geoarchaeologist Sarah Sherwood, has spent around five years studying two moai excavated at the Rano Raraku Quarry on the eastern side of the island. The statues were found upright, one on a pedestal and another in a deep hole, suggesting that they weren't awaiting transport to a new location. The researchers also found crescent shapes and other figures carved into the backs of the statues, and a carved human head was found resting against the base of one of the statues. It's possible that these statues were meant to stay where they were, in the quarry, and served a ceremonial purpose, possibly to ensure a good harvest, because, as it turns out, Ranuraraku was also very productive farmland. After testing soil samples, it became clear that the area around the Rano Raraku quarry was producing foods like banana, taro, and sweet potato. Sherwood believes the soil at Rano Raraku is probably the richest on the island and is also adjacent to a fresh water source, which made the land ideal for farming. The quarrying of the statue seemed to have further boosted the fertility of the soil, while other soil on the island was being eroded away or leached developments for plant growth, the smaller fragments of bedrock raining down from the constant quarrying and carving of the statues provided the soil with elements like calcium and phosphorus, which is vital to agriculture. The combination of small bedrock fragments and fresh water created a perfect feedback system, providing the soil with water and natural fertilizer. Similar research done by Mara Mulroney found that the Rapanoi people would place basalt pebbles, cobbles, and boulders in the mulch gardens they kept for cultivating yams, sweet potato, and other crops. The stones would trap moisture, and the boulders protected the plants from the winds, but the weathering of the rock also allowed minerals to leach into the soil, boosting nutrient levels and thus improving yields. In a good example of the divine used to explain science, the Rapanoi farmers probably didn't realize it was the minerals from the rock shards leaching into the soil, improving their harvest, rather ascribing the great harvest to divine intervention. That's basically where religion comes from. Super interesting. Unfortunately, much of the Rapanoi oral tradition has been lost, and while we have many theories, even the descendants of the Rapanoi still living on the island today don't know why exactly the statues were made. Making large idols containing the spirits of your ancestors and placing them near valuable water and fertile land, inadvertently making the land more fertile, seems like the most likely explanation. However, I quite like the idea of people making big statues to show superiority rather than making spears and killing other people. Yeah, I like the idea, I just don't think that it's very likely. The End of the Moai Jacob Rogeven and his crew reported that when they arrived on the island in 1722, the statues were still being used by the locals for rituals and religious practices. However, when James Cook arrived in 1774, he found the giant statues in ruins. If the Moai were such an important part of Rapa Nui culture, why did the islanders stop making them? While the Moai standing on their platforms were still in use by the time the first Europeans arrived, archaeologists believe that the Moai carving practice reached its peak by the 1500s. However, from the 1600s, things started going in a different direction. According to a local Rapanoi historian, one of the possible reasons for the end of the Moai was the deforestation of the island. Dwindling resources meant the islanders were spending more time building and cultivating specialized rock gardens and gathering what limited resources they could get their hands on, leaving less time to carving and transporting the huge statues all over the islands. On top of that, if they needed logs to transport the Moai, the lack of trees would have made the transportation much harder or even impossible. If the population further declined due to a lack of resources, the Rapanoi people simply wouldn't have had the manpower necessary to continue carving and moving the great Moai. Alternatively, deforestation and lack of resources could have led to societal collapse, with the resources on the island dwindling, the people were starving. As one researcher pointed out, when you make idols, you're going to create the ideal. The early Moai were thinner, but the later ones had great curved bellies. The people were starving, so they made their idols big and fat. 
When they finally ran out of resources, they not only stopped carving the Moai, but even toppled their idols. Perhaps thinking that their ancestors had perhaps abandoned them, or in anger, as an act of taking power away from the ancestors who weren't willing to help their people. Eventually, people started killing each other for what resources remained. See, you get there eventually. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, we're making better Moai than you. And it's like, yeah, but when the resources run real thin... Uh, humans just gonna human, you know? Obsidian spear points found in a layer of subsoil would seem to support this theory. And even among the islanders themselves, there are tales of cannibalism and general carnage. However, the islanders don't seem to think any less of their ancestors. After all, it was desperate times and all that. Later years saw the rise of the Birdman cult. Rapanoi didn't have a whole lot of mammals or reptiles, and by the time the island was properly deforested, the only thing in abundance were seabirds, probably nesting on safer offshore rocks and small islands. So, eventually, as is the nature of all creatures and their beliefs, the Rapanoi began to consider the birds as more sacred, and decided that rather than stone statues, their ancestors were keeping an eye on them from above, in the form of feathery friends. With the ancestors moving from stone statues to birds, there was no longer a need to carve statues for the spirits of the ancestors to reside in. After all, their new homes came with wings and spectacular views. If only they'd done that previously. <laughs> if only they'd be like, yeah, they're, it's just, they're in the birds. <laughs> they're in the birds, sure. And then they wouldn't have destroyed, or potentially, possibly destroyed their island, making giant pointless statues. It's possible that those still praying to the Moai, as reported by the early Europeans, were just the last of the Moai cult stubbornly clinging to their stone idols while the rest of the islanders had given up on the Moai and turned their gazes to the skies and were following the Birdman cult. Not all the Moai were toppled intentionally. Some have fallen down due to an earthquake, while many fell over due to neglect or other environmental factors once the focus shifted to birds. By the mid-1800s, not a single statue was still standing. Wait, are they all knocked over? Or did some archaeologists come along and prop them up again? There's none of them. There were thousands. The Walking Statues While many of the Moai made it to their final resting place, nearly 400 statues are still awaiting transport at Rano Raraku Quarry. That means that only a third of the statues reached their final destination. We're not sure quite why so many of the Moai never left the quarry. Perhaps moving the larger stone statues just wasn't that easy. Moving the giant heads without breaking the detailed features, like the nose and lips, would have been quite the challenge, and some broken statues lying at the bottom of slopes indicate the transport always didn't go didn't always go smoothly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty good indication, isn't it? So how exactly do you move a stone statue weighing a couple of tons if you're not Egypt and you don't have the manpower? If local legends are to be believed, the statue simply walked. Well, maybe we could not believe those local legends here at Decoding the Unknown, because obviously nonsense. The word Neke Neke in the Rapanoi language literally means walking without legs, and according to the stories, that's exactly how the statues moved. Those who possessed mana or divine power could command the Moai to walk from the quarry to their final home. According to legend, only a select few people had enough mana to make the statues move, either by commanding them or by reciting magical chants. One myth tells the story of two Uko Ihu, a popular chief and powerful man whose manner was so great that when he told the statues to walk, they not only walked, but walked to places of their own choosing, deciding for themselves where they wanted to spend eternity. Another tale claims that the greatest god of the island, Makamake, was the one who commanded the statues to move. Wasn't that the name of that? Wasn't there a wasn't that the name of an asteroid? Wasn't there some asteroid that came past called Makamaka? Make make. Make make. I don't know how to pronounce it, but something like that. What's it why have I, I I'm beginning to think now that it begins with an H. So I don't think it was that. 
but I, f- I know that name from somewhere, and I don't know why. If you couldn't get a hold of a great chief or the great god, all was not lost. Priests could chant the statues into place. However, if the priests stopped chanting, the statues stopped moving. Some of the statues never made it because an evil spell halted their march, leaving them stranded by the side of the road. Evil spells were also used to topple the standing statues. Apparently, there was an old woman working as a cook for the sculptors who had enough manner to command the statues to walk. When the image makers, as they were called, refused to share their meal, she ordered the statues to fall down. Moral of the story, don't mess with the cook. However, it seems that the statues could only walk after dark. That must have been quite a sight and probably not something you'd want to run into unexpectedly on a dark and lonely night. Well, good news everybody, you're not going to have to because obviously it's not real. For some inexplicable reason, scientists don't want to accept the theory of the statues walking around the island in the dark and they have some more practical theories to explain how the statues were moved. Ah yes, my favourite part of the episode. It's like, I like magic. I really like, enjoy magic shows and stuff and there was no show I liked more like magic thing than it was called like Uncovering the Magician's Code or something. It was, it must have been like a TV show from the, or the Master magician magician was it called the mask of magician and it was just this dude who was a magician and he used to he'd do the trick and then he'd reveal the secrets of the trick and it's kind of like oh well that's a bit boring but it's also awesome i love knowing the trick one theory suggests that the statues were moved by rolling logs or possibly using wooden sleds pulled with ropes similar to how the blocks were moved for building the great pyramid at giza Joanne van Tilburg and her team managed to move a 10-ton replica using a sledge moved with eucalyptus rollers and a team of 60 people. This is certainly a plausible method, but 60 people are still a lot if you have a small tribe. However, according to a study done in 2012, the old legends might have some truth to them. Really now? (laughs) How so? Like, I feel, yeah, they could walk, but they'd just be like pushed along or like rolled or something right. Terry Hunt and Carl Lipo decided to give the story of walking statues some consideration. Unlike the ancient Egyptians, the islanders couldn't spare too many people to carve and move statues. Cultivating food and finding water were far more important to the people's survival. So what if they walked a statue from the quarry to the Ahu by rocking the statue from side to side in the same way that you would move a fridge? Basics. <laughs> Such a specific example, but I know exactly what you're talking about, Ilza. <laughs> Based on the breakage patterns of the statues that didn't quite make it from the quarry to their final home, it became clear to the researchers that the moai were standing upright before they fell, which meant that they weren't being pulled along vertically on rollers and sledges. The base of the unfinished statues in the quarry, as well as the ones lying on the sides of the road, was wider than those sitting on Ahu. The unfinished statues also leaned forward by about 17 degrees, so the center mass is positioned just over the rounded bottom edge. This allows the statue to roll from side to side. However, leaning so far forward means they wouldn't have been able to stand by themselves, they would tip over. Lipo theorized that the statues were modeled on how people walk. Essentially, you rotate your hip and fall forward. So the Rapanui designed a statue that did the same thing. This is the one, this is the theory that I feel I've heard of and is the one that I just find the most likely. And that these, who is it? Lipo and the other chap? Lipo and Hunt? have cracked this. It would rotate and fall forward, moving step by step. Even the paths on the island seemed to support this theory. After studying the paths leading from the quarry to the Ahu all over the island, the team concluded that the concave paths were designed that way to make it easier for the statue to walk. The Moai was probably guided using ropes by a team on either side of it and a small team behind it to steady the movement. Walking the statue would require a much smaller team than digging it than dragging it on a sled. Once the Moai arrived at its Ahu safe and sound, the final touches would be added and the base reshaped to adjust the center mass, allowing the statue to now stand upright without assistance. 
However, the statues weren't the only things that needed moving. When hats became all the rage in the world of statue fashion, the heavy pukau needed to be moved from the quarry to the statue. They were a lot smaller, the largest only reaching a diameter of around 2 meters, so moving them might have been tricky but not impossible. Getting the headdress onto the statue's head was a different story. One way they could have done this is a ramp and rope technique known as par buckling. A rope would have been tied around the pukau or hat and people would have pulled it up a ramp toward the top of the head. It would probably have been easier to pull than push. Research shows that it's perfectly feasible for around 15 people or fewer, depending on the size of the pukau, to pull the pukau up a ramp and place it on top of the statue's head. Unfortunately, due to time, weather erosion and other factors, the hats have long since fallen off and only a few of the excavated moai can now be seen sporting their fashionable red hats. Of course, where you find amazing feats of human engineering, you find aliens! Yes! <laughs> it's never a Decoding the Unknown episode if aliens don't get involved. According to Eric Von Daniken, oh god, a name I know so well. <laughs> Spouting is, in my opinion, allegedly nonsense theories. He's the guy who wrote, like, Chariots of the God and shit, right? Who studied the Egyptian pyramids and the giant geoglyphs in Peru. The work is too detailed to have been done with the stone tools and it was done by aliens. A small group of aliens found themselves stranded on Easter Island. Of course they did. Though how they managed to do that is unclear, and in an attempt to signal their alien buddies looking for them, they built these huge stone statues which did with distinct human features and placed them all around the island. Because if your alien comrades are looking for you, they're going to be looking for large human heads. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, perfect sense like all of Eric's other ridiculous theories conclusion perched on their platforms or half buried beneath the ground of rapanoi the moai are still keeping a watchful eye on their people they may have been replaced by a birdman cult in the distant past so i'm thinking they're probably not fond of birds but they're the objects of a new kind of worship despite not being the easiest travel destination to reach their visitors are plenty they may not be considered the source of fertility for agriculture but they're still looking after the islands and the people on it by luring tourists and the money that comes with them not something the birds are really doing. We'll probably never know why exactly they were built or how they were moved, but I like to imagine these large statues lumbering across the islands, slowly making their way to their platforms to settle down and spend eternity in contemplation. Who knows? Perhaps they're still walking on the darkest nights when no one is watching, bestowing manna on their people and trampling a few seagulls along the way. <laughs> they're not, because as I said many times, they're made out of stone! And that's where we end today's episode of Decoding the Unknown. Thank you for being here. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.